Now this morning I'll be preaching a sermon entitled The Great Grace of Our Great God. And this particular sermon is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. However, before I preach that message, I'd like to give you a brief overview of the book of Ephesians. Now, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to those believers at the church in Ephesus. And when he wrote this particular book, he had an objective in mind. And that primary objective was to encourage those believers at Ephesus. It was to instruct them as to what they needed to do in order to become mature believers in the faith. Paul's primary objective was to direct them as to what they needed to believe and how they needed to live in order to grow to become mature disciples of Jesus Christ. And he goes about achieving this particular objective by focusing on providing the believers with a great degree of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. In fact, most theologians who study this book or most commentarians, when they study it from a textual criticism standpoint, they say that this book can effectively be split right in half, with the first half being ascribed to Paul giving the believers at Ephesus a great degree of orthodoxy, meaning right doctrine. So when you read the first half of this inspired epistle, you will find that the Apostle Paul is very didactic in his approach. In other words, he provides those believers at Ephesus with a great degree of theology. He provides them with a great degree of teaching. He provides them with a great degree of those principles and precepts of God, of heaven, of Jesus Christ, what he taught when he was here. So he provides them with this deep knowledge of God so that they may know exactly what they need to understand in order to grow to become mature believers in Jesus Christ. And then the Apostle Paul transitions during the second half of this epistle on to providing those believers at Ephesus with a great amount of orthopraxy, meaning right practice. So in the second half of the book, as you read through it, as you study it, you will find the Apostle Paul focusing on directing those believers as to how to go about living according to those principles and precepts that he, through the Holy Spirit, wrote during the first half of the book. So the second half of the book is very practical in nature. And Paul, as he goes about achieving this objective, during the first three chapters of the book, he focuses primarily on explaining all that God has accomplished through his plan of redemption. In other words, as you study the first three chapters, you will see Paul explaining 
all the details of all that God accomplished through his great plan of salvation, all that he accomplished through sending his son Jesus Christ out of the glory of heaven onto earth to die for our sins and thereby reconciling us through his sacrificial death upon the cross. This is what Paul's primary objective is. And he goes about supplanting and supporting that objective with those inspired words that he penned in verses 8 through 9 in chapter 2. So please open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Now here in verses 8 through 9, the Apostle Paul, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words. He says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And when Paul says, for by grace you have been saved, he is pointing to the fact that it is by God's grace and by God's grace alone that we have been given the free gift of salvation. And grace is defined as the undeserved mercy of God. It is defined as the unmerited favor of God. So what Paul is pointing to is that God has bestowed upon each and every one of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, his undeserved mercy, meaning there's absolutely nothing that we could have done to deserve his mercy. Yet God, motivated by his love, has showered us with his everlasting grace. And we were in need of this grace because the word of God says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this points to the fact that our God who is in heaven, he is a holy God, he is a perfect God, he is a righteous God, and he has issued forth and prescribed a righteous and perfect law. And he requires every single solitary human being to hold to that law perfectly. But because our forefathers sinned in Adam and Eve, and we have inherited that sinful nature, each and every one of us has broken that law. And that is the very definition of sin from a biblical standpoint. Sin is simply defined in the Bible as the breaking of God's law. And that points to the fact that each and every one of us, at some point in time in our lives, we have not held to the law. We have not held to the Torah. We have not held to it perfectly because at some point in time in our lives, we have all exhibited pride. At some point in time in our lives, we have all been disobedient to God. At some point in time in our lives, we have all, we have all lied. We have all deceived. We have all committed sins. So we all fall short of the perfect and righteous standard that God has issued forth and required each and every one of us to hold to. And because we all fall into that category of being sinners, the word of God says in Romans 6.23 that God has prescribed a righteous and just punishment for each and every sinner. And that just punishment In Romans 6.23, he says, the wages of sin is death. Wages meaning what you earn for those sins. 
Death pointing to eternal condemnation in hell. And the word of God says that if you break one law, you break them all. I think John MacArthur once said, I read, read somewhere to where he described the law of God as a glass window. And it's all held together as one pane. And if you break it, the entire thing shatters. You just break one, the entire thing shatters. And that is what Jesus Christ spoke to when they challenged him and said, Jesus, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your might, and all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is just like it, love the neighbor as yourself. All of those laws hang on this. So if there's anyone in the house who has gone through life saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. You know, I've, I, I don't do a lot of wrong. I do a lot of good. I may do this a little bit or that a little bit. The word of God says if you break one law, you've broken them all. And the wages of sin is death, meaning eternal condemnation in hell. But God loves us. He loves us for we are his creation. And instead of giving us hell, he's offered us by his grace, motivated by his love. He's offered us the free gift of salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what the Apostle Paul is pointing to when he says, for by grace you have been saved. And when he says you have been saved, it's exactly what we've talked about. That by believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But if we've been saved, we have to have been saved from something. And what is that something that we are saved from? Well, it's exactly what Romans 6.23 points to, eternal condemnation in hell. Another way to describe that is what the Bible points to, which is eternal conscious torment. And many non-believers have a wrong understanding of hell. Many non-believers propose annihilation, meaning that many non-believers believe that when you die, you are simply annihilated and nothing happens. Therefore, they can live however they want here on earth because once they die, they simply disintegrate into nothingness. But this is an errant theology because the Bible points to the fact that hell is a place where there will be eternal conscious torment. And we see a great picture of this in the book of Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 24. Please turn your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 24. Now, once you are there, you will find the account of the rich man and the poor man Lazarus. And this is what Luke said. He said, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, in other words, hell, being in torment, 
he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, meaning Abraham, to send him, meaning Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said to the rich man, in regards to his five brothers, he said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, this is the rich man replying, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So this gives us a clear picture of the eternal conscious torment that is experienced in hell. Because here you have the rich man calling out to Abraham in heaven, seeing him through that chasm that divides heaven and hell, and saying, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and place it in my tongue, for I'm in agony in these flames. This is what we who believe have been saved from. And what have we been saved to? Well, we've been saved to the abode of God. We've been saved to that third heaven. We've been saved to that place where God sits enthroned in all of his majesty and all of his splendor. We've been saved on to that place where God says that there will not be another tear where he will wipe each and every one of them, where there will never be crying anymore, where there will be streets of gold that we may walk upon, where his everlasting light will be and we will reside with him forever and ever and ever for all of eternity. That is what we have been saved to. And this is what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing when he says, for by grace you have been saved. And then he goes on to say, through faith. And when he says through faith, he is indicating that faith is the vehicle by which we are saved. He is pointing to the fact that faith is the instrument by which we receive the free gift of salvation. And we see a clear definition of faith in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1. Please turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1. Now here in Hebrews 11, 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And what is it that we're assured of? Well, we're assured of the fact that God is real. And that he rewards those who believe in him. And what are we convicted of that we have not seen? Well, we're convicted of all of God's promises. 
all of those promises from the Old Testament on through the New Testament, all of those promises that we receive as being new covenant believers, that new covenant that God formed with Israel that we partake of through our relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ being the initiator of that covenant. Now, we, we, we have not received that covenant. We as believers, that covenant is not with us. It's with Israel. But we partake of the benefits of that covenant because when we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the initiator of that covenant, the mediator of that covenant. Therefore, we partake in some of the benefits of that covenant. But that covenant will not be fulfilled until the second coming of Jesus Christ when he goes on to redeem all of the nation of Israel. That's when that covenant will be fulfilled. But now we partake of some of the best blessings of that covenant. And we partake of it by faith in Jesus Christ, by placing our trust in him. And this is what the Apostle Paul is indicating when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he goes on to say, and this is not your own doing. Now, when he says that this is not your own doing, that's the part of that scripture that strikes at the pride of every man. That's the part of that scripture that man has grappled with from the time that those inspired words were revealed to him because it strikes at our very core and it points to the fact that We played absolutely no part in our salvation. And Paul makes it very clear because he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. And this is supported by many scriptures throughout the Bible, including Ephesians 2.5. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2.5. And here in Ephesians 2.5, Paul, leading up to Ephesians 2.8, says this as he lays the foundation for those words. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, when Paul says, when you were dead in your transgression, when you were dead in your trespasses, in other words, when you were dead in your sins, he is indicating that all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, prior to coming to believe, we were all spiritually dead. So that points to our spiritual deadness. And as you know, as we talk about the fact that a person who is dead can do absolutely nothing to revive themselves. A person who is dead has absolutely no power to bring themselves back to life. And this is what Paul is pointing to, the fact that when we were spiritually dead, it is God who enlivened our hearts. It is God who quickened our hearts. It is God who reached into the muck and mire of our trespasses and our sinfulness. It is he who reached into the darkness and depravity that we were in. And he took out that heart of stone 
that heart that rebelled against him, that heart that refused to submit to him, that heart that decided to live your life the way you want to live it, regardless of God and who he is and how he says to live. He took out that rebellious heart of stone and gave each and every one of us who believes a heart of flesh. He is the one who enliven our minds to understand who the one and true living God is. He is the one who enliven and quicken our minds and our hearts to understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the one who enabled us to know that it is only by putting our trust in Jesus Christ that we may be reconciled to him, that we may be purchased from the hands of Satan, that we may be purchased from the very gates of hell and be casted into the glory of heaven. This is what the Apostle Paul is pointing to when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You did absolutely nothing. And he goes on to reemphasize this fact with the other words that he states after that when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, he says. So as he further highlights the fact that you had absolutely no part in your salvation, he emphasizes it by saying, this is the gift of God, meaning all you could do is receive it. It's sort of like when you were a child, five, six, seven years old, and your parents threw you that birthday party, invited all your friends and They all walked through the door and they all had a gift in their hand and you did absolutely nothing to earn those gifts. You simply existed and they brought you those gifts and all you could do is extend your hand, receive it and say thank you. In that same way, all we did was exist in our spiritual deadness and God, motivated by his love, by his grace, extended us the free gift of salvation. And all that we can do is extend proverbially our spiritual arms and receive that free gift. So it is by his grace and by his grace alone that we are saved. Then Paul goes on to say, for by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God. Then to put that hammer to that nail one more time, he says, it's not a result of works. Now, when he says it's not a result of works, he is pointing to the fact that there is no amount of good deeds that you can do in order to earn your salvation. There is no amount of good works that you can engage in in order to merit the favor of God. There is no amount of giving to the church. There is no amount of of being a good husband. There is no amount of giving to charity and donating your time. There is no amount of being a good wife. There is no amount of being a good son, a good daughter. There is no amount of good deeds that you could do in order to earn your way into heaven. And God makes this very clear through the prophet Isaiah. 
If you please, please turn your Bibles to Isaiah 64, 6. As Isaiah prophesies to the Israelites under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God in Isaiah 64, 6, he makes this very clear concerning the fact of what our deeds look like before God, what our deeds amount to in God's economy. Isaiah says in 64, 6, he says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In some of your Bibles, it says it's like a filthy rag. Many of you may have heard it said that way, that our good deeds are like filthy rags to God. And that points to the fact that because we are all depraved, because we all have a sinful nature, every good deed that we do is imbued with that sinfulness. Because every good deed that we do is masked in our pride. It's masked in the sinfulness of of self-grandizement. And because it's covered in our depravity and our pride, even those things which we deem as good, God says it's like a polluted garment to him. It's like a filthy rag. And therefore, every world religion that teaches that your good deeds or that your good works can earn your way into heaven, they teach a false philosophy. They teach a false path to salvation. Every world religion that teaches a works-based salvation proclaims a false path to eternity with God. Amen is right because there are so many false philosophies out there. So many religions teach that you must balance the scales of good and evil. Some teach that you must meditate day and night until you reach that point of enlightenment. Some teach that you must go out and knock on doors and share a false gospel. But all of these paths, whether they come from Islam, whether they come from Hinduism, Buddhism, whether they come from Mormonism or Zoroastrianism or all the other isms in the world, they all teach a false path to salvation. Christianity is the only religion that teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. So this is the one and only path to God's eternal grace in heaven. And this is what the Apostle Paul is highlighting when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. And then he goes on to say, so that no man may boast. And when he says that, it's like he takes that hammer and gives that nail the final pounding and drives it right into the center of our pride. And he explains the divine logic behind why God established the plan of salvation the way that he did. He gives us the divine reason as to why God, in his infinite knowledge, set out his plan in this way. And he says he did it so that no man can boast, so that no one can boast, pointing to the fact that 
As the scriptures say, it is appointed once for a man to die, then comes the judgment. So each and every one of us have been given a preordained time to where God will call us home to judgment. Both believers and non-believers will stand before God in judgment. And this speaks to every believer out there to let you know that when you stand before God and to non-believers, when you stand before the righteous one, the holy one, the perfect one, you will not be able to boast that you have earned your way into heaven. You will not be able to boast about all the deeds that you performed in order to receive the gift of spending all of eternity with God. For God has devised this plan so that he and he alone will receive all the credit for your salvation. He has devised this plan in a way that he and he alone will receive all of the glory for your redemption. This is the plan that he set forth before the beginning of time. This is the plan that he set forth that his son would come and die for your sins and only by believing in him and trusting in him will he grant you the free gift of salvation so that he receives all the glory. And God makes it very clear throughout the scriptures that he will absolutely not share his glory with anyone. And he makes a great proclamation of this in the book of Isaiah 42.8. Please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 8. Now here, as God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, he proclaims these words. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. So God says that he will not give his glory to no other. He will not share his glory with anyone. That he and he alone will receive all the glory for our salvation in heaven. And why should he share his glory with us? Why should the creator share his glory with the created? Why should the sustainer share his glory with the sustained? Why should the life giver share his glory with the life given? Why should the infinite share his glory with the finite? Why should the potter share his glory with the pottery? No, he and he alone is God. He and he alone is one responsible for our salvation. He and he alone spoke the entire universe into creation. He and he alone is one who sustains the entire universe in in addition to our very lives. He and he alone is one who sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, out of the splendor of heaven onto earth, wrapped himself in sinful, in, in human flesh, never sinned, then climbed up on that cross, humbled himself atoned for our sins and redeemed us from the clutches of Satan. It is God and God alone, amen, is right. It is God and God alone who did this. It is he and he alone who had Jesus Christ in that tomb for three days. It is he and he alone who rose him on the third day. It is he and he alone that after 40 days by his power had him ascend into heaven. And it's he and he alone who has him sitting on the right hand of God right now interceding on our behalf as the high priest as our righteous mediator in heaven. It is God and God alone who has done this. Therefore, he receives 
all the glory. He deserves all the glory, all the credit for our salvation. And if there is anyone present with us this morning who has not tasted of this holy and righteous God, if there's anyone with us this morning who has not tasted of salvation through Jesus Christ, if every time you've heard about God throughout your life, you've been so steeped in your pride that you have refused to submit to him, you have refused to submit to the one who has given you life, you refuse to submit to the one who breathed his very breath into your lung and woke you up this morning. And if he were to remove his very breath from you right now, you would be called to judgment. If you have rebelled against this God, if you have rejected him and his offer of salvation that he offers freely through Jesus Christ, I commend you and I exhort you to submit to him this day. Do not wait. I exhort you to flee from the wrath that is to come. Flee from that place of uttermost darkness. Flee from that place where that rich man resides right now in eternal conscious torment. Flee from that everlasting fire that you will be immersed in. And flee into the arms of Jesus Christ. Place your trust in him. Accept him for who he says he is, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity who loved you so much that he died upon the cross that he may redeem you and he may purchase you back and reconcile you to his holy father in heaven. And if any of you are present who has any questions about that, you could see me or one of the elders after if you have additional questions about it. But I just commend you, I exhort you, I encourage you to accept him because no one is promised tomorrow. And as we understand the report that Beth received in December 2nd of last year, it should drive that point home even more. Although we're praying and trusting that God will extend and spare her life, it serves to wake us up to the fact that at any point in time, life, which is so very fragile, can change. And the trajectory of your life could be directed to stand before God at any moment in time. So accept him. Surrender to him. Run to him. That he may place his Holy Spirit in you and seal you onto redemption. Amen?